The information in this podcast is not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. Welcome back to episode 72 of the Practice of Being Seen podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong, relationship therapist and mentor to therapist changemakers. The Pobscast is a collection of weekly connectfulness conversations where we examine how to create deeply restorative ripples of transformation within ourselves and within the world around us. How do you feel about money? Is it a subject that you're comfortable talking about? Most of us know that money is necessary in today's world, but we might not realize the sensitivity that we carry around talking about this topic and how many relationship issues are actually related to our views of money. Today's show explores the psychology of money. My guest, Joanne LaFeld, began her career as a certified financial planner in the New York metropolitan area. Now in the Hudson Valley, she's created a unique business working with clients one-on-one and with couples. She offers a holistic approach, referring to herself as the Mula Dula, helping people give birth to a healthier relationship with money. Joanne talks about how we deal with our feelings of unworthiness, not enoughness. She offers a unique view on the enough versus abundance perspective and shows how we can change our mindset to fight against self-limiting beliefs. We have to expand our beliefs in what we can accomplish in order to change the flow of energy and to put a positive spin on our day-to-day lives. Joanne also talks with me about a topic that's really close to my heart as a relationship therapist. Often when we get into difficult conversations, especially charged ones like the topic of money, they can interrupt our relational flow. Why is that? Well, when there's discomfort in the partnership, in the relationship, in the conversation, what happens is that we're often showing up as our adaptive children. These are parts of ourselves that have learned old behaviors, old ways of being, and it's part of the baggage that we all carry with us into our adult lives from our childhood experiences. Let's dive in, learn more together. Welcome back to the Practice of Being Seen podcast. I'm joined today by Joanne LaFeld. Joanne, you call yourself the Mula Dula. <laughs> yes, I do. Do you want to jump right in with that a little bit and tell us a little bit about what that means and how you coined that term? I love it, by the way. Thank you very much. Well, money is one of those subjects that can get you feeling absolutely excruciatingly uncomfortable. And I thought that if I could lessen the anxiety around it, it would really help people feel more comfortable in having a conversation. So a moolah, moolah is a name for money. It's a Mm -hmm. slang for money. And it's interesting because in certain areas, I don't have to describe what the word doula is. It depends on what town I'm giving a workshop in. But a doula is a non-licensed person who assists in childbirth and then postpartum. So I like to think of myself as a money doula in that I help people give birth to a healthier relationship with money. I love that. Okay, (laughs) so let's go a little bit deeper in here. So do you think that most people have a healthy or an unhealthy relationship with money? I think that money is one of those subjects that rarely gets discussed. 
and it certainly doesn't appear in the curriculum of school. And so I think what happens is that people make certain assumptions. They develop beliefs and attitudes that go all the way back to early childhood. And in some instances, these beliefs occur when it's in a precognitive stage and certainly at times even pre-verbal. And so we assume that these understandings that we as very small children adopt are the way we're supposed to deal with money. It becomes our way of operating with that form of energy. Mm. And because in our culture we do not discuss money, it's something that doesn't get called into question. And so as we mature and go through different stages of our lives, we're using rules, beliefs, and attitudes that are really archaic to what our needs are as adults. I really agree with you there. And I think money in some ways has this connotation of, unfortunately, feeling like a dirty word to some. (laughs) A dirty word. Well, Well, it's kind of like, I mean, I would possibly say the same thing about sex, and I don't think sex is really dirty. I work with people in relationships and sex all the time, but I think it's one of those things. It's one of those topics that's hard to talk about. That's exactly what I was going to share with you, that it's hard enough to talk about sex, but honestly, people do not even begin the conversation about money and certainly not in coupling. It's a dance that people agree to just not even touch on. It's that sensitive a subject matter. Why do you think that is? I mean, aside from all the pre-programmed stuff that we have, and aside from I could probably go on a huge tangent about why people don't have difficult conversations and relationships. That's one of my loves to talk about. But why do you think it is money in particular? That is it just these old stories? Is it the fact that it's never been modeled for us? Is it something deeper? Is it? I think that it has a lot to do with the fact that A, it's probably been modeled in a very unhealthy way. I also think without a language and understanding what it means to feel a sense of prosperity or abundance in a society where we are being told that the more we have, the more successful we are. So I think it's not only the internal conflict where you're really trying to get a sense of what are my life values personally, but then imagine trying to begin the conversation with your partner where You're both trying to show up in your best performance as your best selves and trying to meet expectations that may or may not even exist in the real world. And so it's very hard to expose those parts of you that either aren't fully formed or that you feel, you used the word before, shameful about. There's a lot of shame that goes into, I'm not enough, I'm not charging enough, I have debt, I don't understand what I have my money invested in. All those different conversations that, interestingly enough, after I start working with people, they become so comfortable in having these conversations because I remove the judgment and the confusion and all the misunderstandings that they've heaped on themselves for so many years. That's so liberating. Yes. Yeah. I love working with couples. Well, when you're working with couples, you have a whole system in front of you. And so you can really affect change. If you're working with one part of a couple, they go home to a blockage because that conversation hasn't been opened up. That is true. On the other hand, working one-on-one with people who are not in couples, 
can be incredibly life-changing because they all of a sudden see opportunities to view not only themselves, but what their potential is in a whole different framework. Yes. You've been talking also in this already a little bit about the shame and the not enoughness and some of those vulnerable places, not charging enough, not earning enough, not putting away enough, not knowing where your savings are. I noticed that very often it's this idea of this, this, there's a deeply embedded story about worthiness. Mm. That's often underneath that, right? Like, and often that has to be unpacked. I would agree with you 100%. And what I describe to clients is that I'm asking them to put on a coat that's three sizes too large and go out into the world, whether it's in increasing their fees, whether it's in imagining themselves cultivating, if we're talking about therapists, mm-hmm. a larger practice, a more diverse practice. Because what's amazing is that within a few months, that coat fits. Something happens when you step out and you expand your belief of who you are and what you can accomplish. It just takes place. I want to pause you only because I want to dig in more. I want to dive deeper. Something happens, you said, when you put on that coat, when you expand your belief of what you can accomplish. Can you dissect that with us a little bit more? Can you open that up? even deeper, because I am in total agreement with you here. No matter who I'm working with, this is often the very work we do. Ah. I want you to describe it from your perspective. I know it well from mine, but I don't know it from yours, and neither do our listeners. Well, I believe that our thoughts create our beliefs, which in turn create our reality. And I believe that as long as we have self-limiting beliefs, energetically speaking, that's what we're attracting into our lives. It has to do with quantum physics, how particles are attracted to similar particles. And so when people are uncomfortable with the idea of thinking in a more positive, expansive form, when I articulate that it's like putting on a big coat, they, everybody's done that, you know, whether when you're a child and you put on your father's coat or you're in a store and you really love something, you say, oh my God, it's three sizes too big, but maybe I can buy this. They can relate to that. But in a sense, it's, my daughters walk around in my high heels all the time. Oh, so did mine. Okay. <laughs> even if, I don't even know how old my daughter was and she was handling them better than I was and still does. But what happens is there's almost this a kinesthetic relationship to, oh, wait a second, I know what she's asking me to do. And yes, it's uncomfortable, but I think I can imagine it. And so there's almost this bolstering of confidence because when people don't buy into their self-limiting beliefs about what their financial situation is, what their sense of progress is in developing a practice, they can then begin to change the flow of energy put a more positive spin on their day-to-day lives. And the stories I could tell you about what experiences my clients have had when they come back and report to me about what happened is extraordinary. And I just sit in a very humble place saying, I don't take responsibility for it, but I'm so glad that I can be the vehicle for change so that they can move beyond where they were before. You know, I just want to tell you something that I share in my workshops. We live in a culture where something flavorless 
and odorless and colorless is prized because of the price tag. And I'm referring to vodka. So when people say, I can't charge more, there's something that's happening in our, again, our consumerist culture where the higher ticket items are more highly prized than those that are lower. I find that the thing that gets in the way of charging more, and we've already hit on this, is believing in yourself, believing, Mm -hmm. because if you don't have that confidence, nobody's going to really buy it. I believe that that's true, but sometimes it happens in the inverse relationship. So that sometimes I've had clients... Sometimes you have to wear the shoes and step into it before you can believe in it. Right. So that when you present your new rate to a new customer and they say, okay, Mm-hmm. It's almost like a confrontation with a new reality where you have to say, well, oh, right. oh, 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 okay, yes, that's my rate. And therapists, because look, we are functioning as therapists in a very mental model as opposed to in a, you know, a more spiritual model, we overthink things. Yes, very much so. You know, it's so funny. Not too long ago, a few weeks ago, maybe, I had a day where I was packed full, but I had this like extra hour here and an extra hour there. Like I had clients right before those hours. And both of those clients, like we got to the end of their session, they're like, can I do another hour? (laughs) You know, and it was just, we were in a flow, we were in a space. And so I ended up having two double sessions on that day, ended up with, you know, without my free time. There's another whole conversation around boundaries there that I'm sure I can have also. But in terms of abundance, right. You know, and what people are believing in and what they're willing to do and spend on and what they value. Sometimes it's just, I find, about sitting in the truth of what we offer. And I think that's what was happening in those moments. I wasn't trying to make a sale. I was just present. That's true. And I also think you hit on something very significant, which is that we collectively, of course, we spend so much time doubting ourselves and our self-worth that it isn't until we turn it around and say, given my gifts and given my compassion, how much am I depriving people of what I have to offer? Mm -hmm. Becomes a very different experience of what we can be seeing ourselves perform as opposed to feeling like, well, gee, you know, it's really hard to get clients. I mean, that's what I hear. It's very competitive up here. There are so many therapists. That's all true. It is and it isn't. Mm -hmm. I've I've reinvented my business over the years. And I've gone from being a therapist who charged really low rates and then got into insurance and made a little bit more money and then left insurance and dropped the number of clients I was seeing but kept my income the same and then raised my rates. So I've done a lot of different things over the years. And I'm now at a point where I have a very comfortable practice. I'm working number of hours that feels right for me and that leaves the space and the abundance for me to create other things and offerings and be creative and be with the people I want to be with, my family, and also brings in the income that my practice needs to thrive. And I can do that without overworking, without seeing so many clients that I deplete myself so that when I'm with the clients I'm with, I can really be present and grounded. Now we're talking about boundaries, because when you go beyond what is a comfortable boundary, your quality suffers, your clients suffer, and then you're not able to produce what you had set out initially to do. Yes. So there has to be a dance between the two. Your sense of self-worth, which again, going back, 
You may need to expand it. It's similar to like a snake shedding its skin or like a hermit crab. They always need to size up because they know they're going to grow into it. That's the process that needs to take place. I love that. I think it's Eric Carl. He wrote a children's book about, you know, the hermit crab who keeps getting all the little creatures on its home and then it outgrows it and it needs a new home. And I think it's so illustrative because we grow and we manifest a change and we come into a new belief of ourselves. And as soon as we really get grounded there, guess what happens? It's time to change. It's time to grow again. Yeah, that expansion. It like, I think this is one of the things that a lot of people like miss sometimes along the way, is that we're constantly evolving and expanding and growing, and there's enough abundance to hold us in all of that growth. Most definitely. Yeah. Earlier, when you were talking about the quantum physics of believing in yourself and attracting like, it really started to have a very spiritual flair to that conversation. Money can really be spiritual, can't it? I think that money is a form of energy. And in that, depending on the way the person chooses to use it, it can be used in a very positive way, or it can also be used in a negative and controlling way. Mm -hmm. So it is a conversation that relates back to what are your life values? What's going to be important When you reach that age and stage when you're looking back over your life and you're trying to assess what were those moments or those memories that really resonate the most deeply for you, they're not going to be that, what, 60-inch television set or that car that you drove in a lease for four years. It's not about that. So when you get clear about what your values are in life, whether it's family or independence or it's, um, you know, you're taking care of your health and well-being, all of your decisions about how you spend and use money need to be funneled through those values so that when you look back, you are in complete 100% alignment with what you believed was important. I'm just nodding. Silently nodding. Yes. There's this other thing that maybe it's worth us unpacking together. And that is for a lot of helpers and healers and visionaries. I think part of the tabooness, the hard part of the conversation around money comes in around how do healers charge for healing work? And I know there, this has been a conversation that's been had for a really long time, you know, Mother Teresa being one icon that some people might look towards. And there's this smarter piece to healers and helpers. And yet, if they don't, like we were talking about before, set boundaries that also take care of themselves and support themselves, then the care shifts and changes. There's also probably a conversation around privilege in here, too, in regards to both whom people are serving and who deserves to receive what kind of care. And I don't want to miss that conversation, but I think that there's something in here, too, about just how come it's difficult sometimes for people to ask and to believe in worth when what they're offering is healing and support and help to others. I think there are a couple of pieces to that question that need to be looked at. One is, when you talk about someone like Mother Teresa, you're talking about a completely different culture than what we are experiencing now in Mm -hmm. modern life here in the United States. 
And there are certain realities that have to be met as far as being able to have a roof over our head, food that's healthy to support us, the proper kinds of insurance. I mean, there are certain costs, fundamental fixed costs that have to be covered. And so it's very different, not only in other cultures, but also earlier times, because the cost of living has gone up so significantly. And as a mom, you know that it's very unusual to find a situation where a mother has the help of aunties or grandparents. We're no longer living in extended family circumstances. Gosh, we don't even live usually within driving distance to a lot of families anymore. There's so many couples and new families that I work with who have no support. No support. Yeah, I was just on the telephone with someone before whose health is now going into that questionable area because she is doing it all on her own. But okay, so that's one facet of this conversation in terms of how does a healer offer or ask to be compensated? Well, there are real life issues of how to be able to, as an adult, take care of oneself. And if you have children, obviously take care of your family. But the other part of it circles back to what I said about vodka being colorless, flavorless, odorless, and that people don't prize it unless it's charged at a premium. And so when there are healers, and I've been asked this question before, when there are healers or therapists who feel funny about asking what the going rate is, they have to understand that the consciousness around this is that if you're not asking what you're worth, then you're probably not worth it. And I know that's a tough one to get around, but at the same time, I've had my own experience where when I have worked with people who have said, I can't afford your rates, can you help me? I have to say that more than 50% of the time, they don't value the work that we do in the same way as someone who is coming and paying my hourly rate. If you're not feeling it, then you may not take it as seriously as if you were paying for something that is valuable. Now, having said that, did you have a question? No, there's something really deep to that. I find that a lot of my clients these days, I have restructured my business, as I was saying before. And now I'm at the point where a lot of therapy clients, when they walk in the door, they have a very different view of what they're walking into than therapy clients who walked in my therapy office five or 10 years ago did. Mm. And as a result, the work from the second they sit down on my couch is different. It's deeper. It's richer. It's spiritual and powerful and there's something to that. It has also to do with my rates and the whole buildup of what those rates entail. Well, it's also, think of it from this perspective, they want to get their money's worth. <laughs> they do. <Yeah>. So <laughs> there's no ambivalence about, well, you know, you're giving me a break, so we're kind of friendly. And so let's just talk about our lives and our kids. No, they come in, they know they have a limited amount of time to work with you. And as a result, yeah, they want to just get to the root of the problem. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, and then here's the other piece, the, the last part of that question, which is that because I want to make my work available to as many people as I can, I do allocate a portion of my time. I set a boundary, and that's what I would suggest therapists do. That no, not across the board, my rate is anywhere from, you know, X to Y. And at times, maybe I'll have a client who is willing to pay Z. No, my rate is Z. But for 20% of my clients, 
Yes, yes. X. And if at the time that you're asking me, will I make an accommodation to you? You have to have that space open in that 20%. Right. And if I don't, I'll put you on my wait list and I will let you know when I finish the process with that other person. Yes. 100%. Yes. That's exactly what I do. And okay. I'm glad to hear you saying that as well. Mm-hmm. So it alleviates that in the moment pressure of, Ooh, okay, so what can I charge? I feel kind of awkward. No. And that's another part of this conversation, which is you have to have very clear boundaries before the session or before the conversation about money begins. Because once you step in it, it's like quicksand if you're not prepared to present yourself in a very cogent, clear way. So good. When people come to you struggling with issues around money, what's the first thing that you typically see? (laughs) The first thing I typically see is that I don't see it. (laughs) They're so good at hiding it that I don't see it at first. And it isn't until I've gained their trust, which usually happens three quarters of the way through the initial appointment, that one of them decides to step forward and articulate what it is that for them is causing them to be uncomfortable up during the night wondering what how they were going to work this way out. I sometimes sense tension, but and I sometimes sense blame. But what I make very clear and which is why I am so I feel so grateful to be working with couples is that I have an ability to call upon people to show up at their highest level. And to set blame aside, it has absolutely no role in the conversation about money because even if one person is not showing up in the way that the other partner thinks they should, that first partner has been complicit in allowing it to happen. So it's equal responsibility for where they find themselves at the present time. Mm -hmm. Very much so. I think that this is also an interesting piece because you were talking to me earlier before we were recording and you had said that sometimes one person isn't showing up in their full capacity. Right. Sometimes people get to a point in their lives where whether it's the job market, whether it's they're feeling aged out, whether they're feeling maybe they've been let go and they have lost their ability to believe that they can go beyond what, who they've been and what they've been doing. So they've lost their belief in themselves. Exactly. That's the limiting piece. Very much so. And because the other partner who's having to hold more of the load is almost in a panic about, well, how long is this going to last? And why can't you just fix it? It becomes their partner who they married because they saw their best selves in the other's eyes is no longer mirroring them that way. Their partner is now becoming their keeper. And so there becomes this very crippling feeling of inadequacy that in meetings that I have with couples, I'm able to help them reframe it and look at the possibility. And then what's so fascinating is to watch the partner who is still employed get excited 
because they get galvanized by my suggestions and my ability to help them think outside the box and to watch their, yes, yes, that's something you could do. Oh my goodness, this is a great idea. And then they jump on board and they say, I would love to help you do X, Y, and Z. Maybe we should investigate this. And I love when that happens because they go out with a renewed sense of, you know what? That was just one road that came to an end, but here's a whole new road that we can explore and travel down. So it's really powerful. There's also, I'm guessing, something in here that you might see. I know I've seen this in my own relationship where we feed off of each other. In a positive or a negative way? In both both ways, (laughs) right? Like in the moments and the times where one of us may be in a state of doubt, it's contagious. Mm. And at other times where one of us might be in a state of expansion, that can be contagious too. I remember a few years ago, I was going through a state of expansion and my husband was in a bit of a slump and I was able to kind of harness some of my own belief in myself and my own belief in my expansion. And he caught it and he ended up going for a promotion at work. And big things started to shift for him in that space as well. So we both started growing in parallel. Well, and I also think that there's part of what, and I'm speaking again from personal experience, part of what happens is that when you begin to see your partner really manifesting abundance, you have to wrestle with your own self-doubt and say, well, I can't just sit here and watch this happen. I have to do something in my own sphere of influence. So yes, I believe that it can be contagious. Yeah. yeah. But not when someone feels really down and out or they've lost their mojo or the, you know, the, the industry has changed. I mean, there's a lot of shifting going on right now. So much. Wouldn't, right? Wouldn't necessarily allow for that to take place if someone really needs to reinvent themselves. Mm. So some of this has to do then, as you're describing right here, with identity also. How one sees themselves, how one understands themselves, that all plays into how one believes in themselves. If, And I see this often. I see a couple might come into my office and they might come in having sexual problems, but what's really showing up and manifesting is that one of them might be having a really hard time believing in themselves at work and it's showing up in the bedroom. I'm sure that there's a relationship. I mean, I often say it's about the money and it has absolutely nothing to do with the money. Mm -hmm. And I just want to circle back and say that it also has to do with what was going on in childhood. Always, always, always. (laughs) So it's all these. Do you unpack that in your work? I mean, I certainly unpack that. That's a good portion of the work that I do with people. But do you unpack that also? That's the initial session. That's the initial that is, session. That's the initial session. It's all about the inner child. And I have this fantastic exercise, a homework exercise that I ask people to do to become more acquainted with that inner child so that the dialogue, the communication between the very much alive and well inner child that has been ignored and has been dormant, or maybe not even dormant, but has been wreaking havoc in their financial lives needs to be heard so that they can then watch what happens when they go to make an impulse buy, when they go to disregard something that had a deadline. That is their inner child acting out because his or her needs are not being met. Mm. 
I practice relationship therapy from the framework of relational life therapy. It's Terry Reel's model. I'm not sure if you're aware mm-hmm. of it. I know many of my listeners have heard me talk about it before, but often in this work, we assume that everybody starts with a wounded child, that something within themselves where the inner child has experienced some kind of wound. And then there's a piece of us that has become adaptive. There's an adaptive child, a way that we've built up some resiliency to always get through the hardships and the things that haven't worked. And then if we really wake up, there's a functioning adult, mm-hmm. right? But oftentimes when we're in a state of dysfunction or dis-ease in our relationships, when we're in a state of conflict, we're showing up as those adaptive children, right? where we're just going through, this is how I've learned to deal with it. This is what I've learned to tune out. This is where I've learned to put up walls. This is where I've learned to barf all over you. It's those kinds of things that are just how we've learned how to be in the world. But it's when we get into that functioning adult space that we actually have the capacity for change. I think that's absolutely true. And I would echo that by saying, as a thematic meditation practitioner, I also believe that our ego, which forms very early on as a protective mechanism, through the use of meditation, we begin to observe it and we begin to disengage from its control over the way we behave. Similarly to what you're saying, coming into our more functional adult status. Instead of reacting, we act from a place of being awake. And when it comes to the conversation of money, similar to drugs, similar to alcohol, similar to eating disorders, similar to all the addictions that we now have available to us, the relationship with money has to be looked at from this perspective because as I say in the beginning of my relationships with clients, I was a successful certified financial planner. On paper, I was, but I never enjoyed what I did. And I couldn't really understand why I felt it was so empty. Now, fast forward 20 plus years of teaching yoga and forming a deep meditation practice, it's only now that I recognize that back then when I was doing the financial planning I was doing, there was no soul in it. I didn't understand the language of the soul and what it was to be living in alignment with your values. So the best made financial plans, having the right emergency fund, being able to save for retirement, for college funding, for whether you want to own a home, all those things, the best laid plans will be sabotaged if you don't get into a relationship with what your inner child's needs are, because they will wreak havoc. It happens time and again. And that's why now when I work with people, I make it very clear, I no longer have an agenda or licenses to sell products. I'm here to educate and empower them so that they can be in right relationship internally And then turn and use the tools that I give them in the outer world to be able to function and reach their goals. So beautiful. Thank you. It seems to me like what we're really talking about here is the soul. Absolutely. Yeah. 
It's a conversation about money. It's a conversation about worth. It's a conversation around deep, hard relationships to have. But we're really talking about the soul. Correct. These are all these different addictions and distractions. They're they're just, they're ways of really helping us in some ways show up fully as who we are. The addictions are helping us or they're? All of these distractions, even the addictions, when we let them wake us up, it's that waking up that helps us show up as who we really are. When we allow the discomfort to be something that moves us into a state of new action. But wouldn't you agree that the addictions themselves are what's keeping us asleep? The screen is keeping us asleep. The alcohol is keeping us asleep. You know, I've worked with so many people who have a lot of different addictions. I really feel that addictions are part of that inner child in many ways who didn't get their needs met, who is afraid to do anything different. And until they get uncomfortable enough Mm. with the situation they're in, they don't try to change. But when they get uncomfortable enough with it, all of that stuff is highly changeable. And that is also very much the same way with people coming to me to work on a relationship with money. Sometimes it has to get to that point that they are so uncomfortable, they can't take another breath Mm. living with that stress. Right. You know, it's interesting. I was reading something that might be of interest to you to hear from a historical perspective. So we as human beings, when we first came about, we were fighting for our lives, literally fighting for survival, to find food, shelter, and then, of course, self-preservation from being attacked outside. And then fast forward years and years later, all that has been addressed. All those primal needs have been met. And what's happened is now, instead of having the struggles outside of ourselves, they've become internalized in our minds. And we are our own worst enemies. And so we do this entire mental back and forth about, I don't like the way she looked at me. I don't know why he hasn't returned my phone call. And we begin to suffer so incredibly. Because we no longer have to worry about just the basics of food, shelter, and safety. And it's really interesting when you look at it in that context from a cultural standpoint, that it's only a matter of time that all these addictions became part of our coping mechanism beyond what daily survival entailed years ago. Yeah, I, you know, I see that playing out in so many different ways when I've specialized in a lot of different things in in my path as a therapist. And one of the things that I spent a lot of time digging into was postpartum mental illness. Mm. And in the postpartum period, anxiety is so highly prevalent and it feels like a huge problem. It's very problematic. But the thing is, evolutionarily speaking, very similar to what you're talking about, these are biological patterns that mothers are programmed towards that don't have a place. We're not looking over her shoulder for a saber-toothed tiger anymore. We're We're allowed to go to sleep now. We live in a safer place, hopefully. But, you know, many of our needs are attended to, and yet our brains haven't caught up from an evolutionary standpoint. And that's often what creates the, yes, I'm, I'm in total agreement. And it's so tragic. And I think that 
What I really try to do with clients so that the shame has no place in our conversation is I try to give them a context in which understanding why they are or where they've gotten to really helps them stop beating themselves up over things. I've had people come to me and say, oh, we sought advice from a financial planner who basically told us we were, excuse my, effed. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Really? This is what a financial planner who's supposed to be helping you achieve your goals, that's what they said to you? And it's just, no, it's, I don't believe that people need to have any external judgment because they are their own worst critics. I try and encourage people to think in a more positive, expansive way, similar to what we were talking about at the beginning, which is possibility exists if you allow yourself to believe in a new way, using new behaviors, and be open to trying things that you've never tried before. And the success that I'm seeing People coming back and reporting that their lives are easier, more comfortable, their stress level stress levels are lower, they're feeling, I mean, one of the questions that I, I do a pretty in-depth questionnaire, and one of the questions is, is the work you're doing adding value to the world? And it's so interesting to see people ponder that question, and then they have to leave and think about, well, what would my life look like? And how would I have to change it so that I can answer with a resounding yes? I'm making a difference in this world. So anything's possible. Yes. (laughs) So much of the work that I do is about adding value to the world, I hope. And I hope to be inspiring others through this podcast and other ways to also be doing the same. I think in many ways, this is what so many of us are trying to do. And I love that you have this question in those in your work so early on, because this is what inspires us to get out of bed every day. And it should be contributing. I don't like the fact that I just use the word should. That's those words that I struggle with, but it's okay. I used it. But it is great when it contributes also to our livelihoods. It right. puts things back into alignment. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for diving in with me today. Can you let our listeners know where they can find you? Absolutely. Well, I do workshops in New York, Philly, and an upstate area. But my website is my name, www.joannelafell.com. I'm also on Instagram at joanne-lafeld. And feel free to visit me on my website and reach out. I make it very clear to people that if they want to just test the waters, they're welcome to have a complimentary telephone session with me and get a sense of whether or not there's work that can be done together. Wonderful. Thank you so much. It was really a delight to dive deep with you today. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Part two here. Okay. We hopped off. We're hopping back on. My listeners know I do this quite often, so that's okay. (laughs) Some of the juicy stuff happens after the conversation ends. Okay. But one of the things we were just talking about, I was mentioning to you that my own family story, there's obviously two parts, but one line of my own family lineage is that my grandparents were Holocaust survivors, had nothing, came to the United States with nothing, gave up everything they had to come to the United States, and somehow yet they always had enough. 
And that was the story that kind of, there just always was. It was a somehow theory. Somehow there was always whatever they needed. And so then we transitioned from that into talking about what is enough. And that sometimes enoughness is, it is self-defined. It is so important in the conversation of enough versus abundance. Because one of the things that I encourage my clients to do every morning is to adapt. It's almost like a prayer before they even open their eyes, start a list of all the things you're grateful for. I'm grateful to be waking up in a place of peace with heat, running water, a healthy family, just things like that. And therein lies the alchemy of just how the process that I bring people through helps them to develop the sense of there are intangible, non-monetary qualities in their life that they are not recognizing are so precious to them. And like your grandparents, sometimes you have to have all of it wiped away so that when you have tiny morsels of whatever that looks like, it's like such a gift as opposed to the opposite, which is, I can't afford to go to that new restaurant that just opened up in town, and I can't get a new lease on that car, and we're not taking a vacation to the Caribbean this year, and on and on and on. All of the, the no's and all of the obstacles, as right. opposed to what are possible. Right. So it's really the balance that's created both the financial awareness has to be a piece of it, but it really can't be implemented successfully until you begin to ask those important life questions of what is enough? Am I giving value to this world? And when you step, I think the greatest gift that we can receive is to give to others. That's just the way I live my life. Oh, I'm so grateful again to have had this conversation with you. Thank you for hopping back on with me. All right. My pleasure. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. If you're a fan of the Pobscast and you want to support us and help keep us going, we have a fabulous online discussion group that's been meeting for a few months now and will be continuing to meet through September of 2018. We're journeying together in remembering who we are, what we're made of, and why we're here. You can join us, and this is a group specifically led by me, at practiceofbeingseen.com slash wildwomen. You can also learn more about working with me in my relationship therapy practice that's based in New York or in my private intensive couple retreat experiences. You can learn more about both of those at connectfulness.com. And if you're an instigator of change who wants to dive really deeply into connecting all of your parts, then click on the link in the show notes to learn more about working with me one-on-one. The Practice of Being Seen podcast is produced by me, Rebecca Wong, along with the amazing I Can't Do It Without You support of Christy Hausler. Music by Chris Ferris Jr. and Sr., produced by Kidney Stone Studio. And we also welcome you to join our community on Facebook or find us on social media at Pobscast. I always love hearing from you, so also please send me an email at practiceofbeingseen at gmail.com if you want to share any feedback about any episode with me. Also would love for you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We hope that you enjoyed the show and that you'll join us next week for another episode of The Pobscast, 
brought to you by Connectfulness.